Dear Heavenly Father, God, our lives and uh, our society feel very hectic at times, and I know for me personally, this is one of those times that feels pretty hectic. And God, I pray you would give us on uh, this your Lord's Day uh, an eye in the storm where we can focus uh, on you to to establish ourselves, to, to dig down and, and take hold of the rock that is you, to be, to be found, founded upon you, to be built upon you, that uh, we would not be tossed to and fro by, by anything. Pray you would help us to, to sit at your feet and, and to learn humbly today. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So, we come to section 9 of the Westminster Confession of Faith. The infallible rule of interpretation of Scripture is the Scripture itself. And therefore, when there is a question about the true and full sense of any Scripture, which is not manifold, but one, it must be searched and known by other places that speak more clearly. Well, my first point here is this is once again an, an, an inerrantist idea. There is something about Scripture that there is a fullness to it. There is an inspired nature about it coming from God that makes it sufficient unto salvation, uh, unto worship, sufficient unto the administration of the church, sufficient to determine and direct the mission of the church. And uh, because you, you couldn't have this idea that, that anything you want to know or any interpretation that you seek to have about Scripture could be derived from Scripture if it wasn't an incredibly, a divinely, uh, complete, inerrant, uh, perfect document. That it would be the Word of God written that it would be the word of God in such a way that it's not merely a word from God uh, among others. It's not, it's not that there are some words of God contained in it, but that there is this fullness about it that allows it to, to correct you and your understanding about one part of it by another. There, there are things in there that, that may not hardly apply to us. There were things that were written to people then um, that don't have direct application. I think of, I believe it's in Philippians where uh, Paul tells, is it, is it Eutyche and Syntyche, I can't remember their names, two women in the church to get along. <laughs> well, I'm not them, so it's not written to me, and yet there's still some application I can draw from it. There's a lot of other things that are very particular, and they may not be clear, or they may speak to some doctrine or another, and yet may not be the clearest thing, but yet for any doctrine that we need to hold, there is somewhere in Scripture that doctrine propounded clearly that can correct our ideas about it. Well, so that, that's the first line there. The infallible rule of interpretation of Scripture is Scripture itself. And so when we do disagree about it, we're going to go... Uh, to, to those places that speak more clearly. We're going to derive our doctrine from the places that speak clearly, and we're not uh, going to go really anywhere else. If you look at the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15, 
you'll see that that's exactly what the apostles and the elders of the church were doing. They were, they were looking at what needs to be done with uh, the Gentiles. How do they relate to us? How do they relate to the church? To what extent do they need to adopt or not adopt Jewish practices? And they searched the scriptures and sought out those places where the scripture was the clearest. And they compared them and they synthesized ideas uh, about this new situation from the scriptures that were there. That they had access to, that they could read. Um, so that... that I say about that. I also want to say that this, this is a big deal that, that, that the, the scripture is the final authority um, on its own interpretation. The Catholic Church would not agree to that. Uh, to some extent, the, the right, it would be the magisterium and the Pope. So they're going to give you the, the authoritative interpretation of scripture. Um, now they might say that they've come to it this way. And yet, still existentially, they are the authority. And we would not recognize that to be true. Um, the authority is the Holy Spirit speaking in Scripture. And there's no other authority that mediates between us in that. So we, we interpret within the context of the church. We don't go off the rails. We seek to know, hey, what were they thinking in the 1st and 2nd and 3rd and 4th century? Uh, and, and the rest of church history. But nevertheless, the final authority by which we're to judge these things is, is Scripture. Um, so, if you can find people that agree with that statement, that agree that Scripture is inerrant and infallible, you're going to have a hard time finding, and that, it's, and, and that it has been preserved by God, you're going to have a hard time finding people that don't qualify to come and take communion in this church. And so the accusation that there are a gazillion different ways to interpret Scripture and there's a gazillion different ideas and there is no unity in the church is actually false. If you agree to these basic principles, then whatever church you decide to belong to that believes those basic principles, you can still visit this church one day, listen to, to Pastor Wyatt fence the table by reading the institution and speaking of those uh, who, you know, if, if, if you believe in Christ, if you're a member of an evangelical church, a Bible-believing church, in good standing, you've joined yourself to Christ, in good standing, meaning you're not in unrepentant sin and, and been barred from the table by the elders of the church, uh, then, then come here and, and take of the Lord's Supper because this church is a local expression of, of, of God's uh, global, visible church, which you are a part of too. And so there, while we have these denominational uh, affiliations and structures that exist in America, and we sometimes lament those, the origin of those is that a lot of people came to America with some different ideas, and they didn't kill each other for the first time. And so, so that, that's denominationalism. And, and, and so we, we might do well to not get too wrapped, up around, wrapped around the axle about seeking a unity more than we have. We have a unity in one baptism, uh, in one blood and one body that was shed for us. And if you believe these ideas that's, that are propounded in this paragraph, there's an incredible amount of unity that will happen between any, any churches that adhere to that. We are in 1.9. So uh, is it the infallible rule of interpretation of Scripture is the Scripture itself. 
And therefore, when there is a question about the true and full sense of any scripture which is not manifold but one, it must be searched and known by other places that speak more clearly. So, having said that, I want to pose a question to you. What makes an idea about God, about the church, about salvation, what makes a doctrine, a teaching, wrong? It's not biblical, mm. right? right? Now, the accusation uh, from, from a lot of what is, I would say, sort of the liberal slide of much of the church in, in the modern day is that you can't know for sure much of anything from the Bible anyway, so you really shouldn't be telling anybody they're wrong. Look, don't bring up Leviticus 18. If you, you, you don't wear, you know, you, you probably wear a, uh, a coat with mixed fibers in it, and Leviticus 18 says, or you know, Leviticus says you shouldn't do that. Yeah, that's purity law stuff. So we can't even know what this, that, or the other is, so you shouldn't say anybody's wrong. Um, Jesus disagrees with that. In Matthew twenty two twenty nine, he said, you are wrong. <laughs> and then he followed up with why they're wrong. He says, you are wrong because you know neither the scripture or the power of God. And he's talking to the Sadducees who were the liberals of his day. He didn't believe in the resurrection. Uh, who had far more in common with the prevailing Hellenistic Roman culture than they did with really their, their, their biblically based Jewish roots. And Jesus says they are wrong. Matthew 22, uh, tw verse 29. He says they're wrong because of two things. They know neither the scripture nor the power of God. And secondly, um, and this is, I didn't put the address down. It's 2 Peter uh, chapter 2, I believe. I can't remember which verse it is. Maybe one of you can back me up on this. No prophecy, no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So what this is saying is that when I pick up this book that is 66 books, that it's also one book. Clearly there are at least 66 human authors, uh, and maybe some people that dictated and added some notes in there along the way, uh, you know, like at, at the end of uh, maybe one of Paul's epistles and things like that. Uh, people that are sort of narrating what Moses is giving in the law as it's being written down. But generally what we have here, uh, 66 books from 66 different authors, well not 66 different authors, less authors than that, because uh, obviously Paul wrote a bunch of them. Uh, and then there's others that have the same authorship as well, like the Pentateuch. But... Nevertheless, there is a unity because those things which they wrote, they did because they were being moved by the Holy Spirit. They were not doing it of their own will. What they wrote was not of their own will. Now, it doesn't mean that it didn't bear the marks of that person intellectually, habitually, linguistically. It absolutely did. And yet the meaning that is coming through is the exact meaning that God intended for it to have. So what that means is there is a unity of authorship... And so we can look to other authors in other books to clarify the meaning that we are trying to ascertain in another one. That is a completely rejected concept in modern biblical scholarship. Uh, I would say mainstream 
Biblical scholarship. Yeah, completely. So if I wanted to know what the proper doctrine was, well, first off, they would reject that there's a proper doctrine. There's just doctrines. There's not a proper doctrine. And they would say that there's multiple doctrines yeah. uh, in the Scripture. So they would say that James believes something different than Paul, that John believes something different than Peter. And we would reject that, and we would say, no, they agree because they're moved along, as Peter himself says, by the Holy Spirit. And then later in that, in that book... Second uh, Peter three. Uh, in Second Peter three, Peter actually says that uh, Paul's writings are scripture. Yeah. So when modern mainstream scholars look at uh, read Paul and they want to know what Paul means, they're going to look at all of the other books that they agree are Paul's, and they don't agree that all of them that are attributed to Paul are, are his. Uh, but they're going to look at those other ones and see what Paul means by these words in different places. They're going to look at the, the extra biblical material as far as you know, from the ancient world to see how those words were used or how those grammatical uh, uh, devices were used. And they're going to determine it that way. For a long time, they hardly even looked at Judaism, which is, which is ridiculous. In the last 50 or 60 years, they've really turned, well, 70 years, I guess, they've turned back to, well, you know what? Paul was Jewish. We kind of forgot about that. Maybe we should read him in the context of having been an Old Testament scholar himself and living amongst Jewish people, and then, oh, what did these other Jews believe at the time, and so forth. So that, that's good. But what we can do when we look at it is we can know that there are no contradictions here. There may be apparent contradictions, but they are only apparent. They are not real, true, essential contradictions. And so if we want to know what the true doctrine is, we can find it out. We can bounce them off each other. We don't have to just look at Paul by himself or John by himself. Uh, or even Jesus by himself. The apostles were appointed by Jesus to go out and explain Jesus. Primary, primary purpose of the, the Gospels is to show that Jesus was the Son of God. But the Holy Spirit will show you too if you ask. Yes, and the Holy Spirit definitely, on the promise of Jesus, led those apostles into all truth and brought things to remembrance. Yeah. So that they could teach us, so that they could exposit the actions and the life and the work of Jesus. Uh, and, and thus we have the rest of the, the New Testament uh, corpus. Now, there's, a, there's a, a phrase in here you might not be familiar with, which is not manifold, but one. It talks about the meaning of Scripture. So when there is a question about the true and full sense of any Scripture... Which is not manifold, but one. Manifold simply means sort of multifaceted. Okay, so you would have different, uh, different meanings from one scripture, and there's, they're responding to something in particular when they say this. They're responding to something that I guess it, it basically started in the early church, but it had been sort of codified by the Middle Ages, and it was called the quadriga, and it was. This prevailing notion that every text in Scripture had four distinct, separate meanings. It had a literal sense. What is, uh, what is it sort of obvious on the face of it and what it could tell us about past events. It had an allegorical sense, as in uh, everything in the Old Testament had an allegorical sense where it could, it, it could tell us something about Jesus. There was an allegory to Jesus. It had a moral sense. It was going to tell us something about how to live. And it has an anagogical sense or, or an eschatological sense. It's going to tell us about the end. Now, 
is it responsible to use each of these sometimes? Sure. Absolutely. Absolutely. But to just get really still, you know, what's the word I'm looking for? Not stultified. Calcified. That's the word. One of those other five words. Um, to get really calcified about it and say, you know what? Every single scripture, we're going to come up with four meanings. You're going to come up with some wacky stuff, which is exactly what happened. Uh, so what they're saying here is, is that not that there may be a multifaceted or multi-pronged or layered apparent and deeper meaning uh, sense in Scripture, that the Scripture may point to something close and far at the same time, if you will. They're not saying that that's not true. That's absolutely true. But they're not doing this. They're not going with this, with this prevailing Middle Ages Roman Catholic idea of the quadriga. Uh, that the, the, the sense of the Scripture is not secret. It is... It, is, it, is, it can be sought out by studying the scriptures um, in their entirety to find out uh, what God is, is getting across. Any questions about this section before we move on to 10? Um, the quadrica was uh, the Roman Catholics. Um, they came up with that? It would be false to say they came up with it, but I mean, they sort of, there, there had been a lot of settling on it. Uh, by the Middle Ages. So if you so go back like to like... mystical kind of... It could get very mystical, yeah. Um, a lot of numerology-ish kind of stuff. Yeah. Which... That stuff is still carried on today. It, it does, and to some extent, I think even that stuff can be used responsibly. Experiences. Yeah. And I think some of that stuff can be used responsibly. Um, you know, if you're looking at Genesis and you realize there's a there's a center word and an end word and a or beginning word and end word of certain sections, and it, it does have this structure that's very complex and sort of tells its own story. Um, things. Origen was a was an early church father who kind of went off the deep end, particularly near the end of his life. But he was he was a big allegorical interpreter, and some of the stuff he came up with, you look at it, you go, okay, wow, that kind of is there. Uh, and I don't remember any offhand. There are some scriptures that are in an allegorical sense, but if you yeah. say that the creation, for example, is allegorical, that right. Adam and Eve fall is allegorical. No, it's... Yeah. I mean... And he, he didn't necessarily... I don't know what he said about that, actually. But what his would be more, more far-fetched than that. It's, it's more along the lines of, you know, if there were... If, if, if David picked up five smooth stones, he's got to have that five relate to something. Mm. Okay. And I, I don't remember any of Origins. Uh, somebody brought, brought up a few of his that were actually really interesting. And you go, wow, it's uncanny the relationship of those numbers to something that happens in the New Testament. Mm -hmm. and, or with Jesus. And it's just, that, that, that's cool. And so I, I don't think it's, it's bad to necessarily see those things. And maybe uh, in the Reformed context, we tend to to turn away from those things so hard that we do miss out a bit, but we do want to maintain a balance. Yeah. Uh, we don't want to go completely nutty with it, which I right. think a lot of people have, as you as you know. Mm -hmm. okay. I do brain donuts with the Bible. I like that. The infallible rule of interpretation of scripture is scripture itself. Amen. Yeah. So section 10, and this is the last section of chapter 1, Praise God. We'll be done with chapter one. <laughs> I thought I was going to knock this out in a week or two. It didn't work. Um, 
The supreme judge by which all controversies of religion are to be determined and all decrees of councils, opinions of ancient writers, doctrines of men, and private spirits are to be examined and whose sentence we are to, to rest can be no other than the Holy Spirit speaking in Scripture. Now, controversies of religion, okay? You can look at what the councils came up with in the first you know, several centuries of the church. You can look at what, you can examine the ancient writers. You can see what they wrote. You can see what Calvin wrote. You can see what Luther wrote. You can see what Thomas Watson wrote. You can see what John Owen wrote. But, ultimately, they are only authoritative to the extent that they agree with and adequately explain the whole of Scripture. Now, the Catholic Church, with, with no... Um, how do I say this? With some degree of, of maybe rightness, uh, was very alarmed at what was the crisis of authority that they saw as being created by the Reformation. If there is no authority... In a, in a human structure sense, then the body of Christ is going to be fractured. And people are going to believe bad things. Well, so the, their, their answer to that is just to maintain the, the authority of the councils, of the church magisterium, of the popes, in determining these doctrines. But there's there's sort of a hidden uh, problem in that, and that they've, they've passed over a couple of problems. One, there wasn't unity then. The big one that ought to stick out is the schism of the East and West in the church that already occurred. Uh, in, in, what was it, around uh, 1056? 1054. 1054. Thank you, Monica. Uh, in 1054, East-West schism of the church. Papal bull, Pope excommunicates the entire Eastern church. Prior to that, uh, really, uh, the African churches and so forth were, were a bit, um, were, were never, never quite as, some of those were never quite as uh, uh, brought under the fold. They always resisted the authority of Rome, as did, to some extent, uh, the Irish church, believe it or not. So, so the idea that there was a perfect unity prior to the Reformation is false. The other idea is that there wasn't a crisis of authority prior to the Reformation. If there was a crisis of authority, it was already coming. Uh, we had already had uh, two, or I can't, was it just two, or was it three popes at one time? Uh, <laughs> huge, huge issues had already occurred. And not only that, but the common person with any sense of holiness about them could look at what was going on with the Renaissance church and say, if this is the church, it's false. Because it was so misled uh, they, they, were, they were tied down somewhat in terms of doctrine, but in terms of their actions, just completely off the rails. So don't give in to the Catholics' idea that we just screwed everything up. Like it was, everything was great until you guys came along and botched it up over a few little ideas. If you could have just kept your mouth shut and not felt so self-important, uh, you know, we, we, this, this great, perfect time could have continued. By the time the Reformation came about, it was over. 
The other thing is that it, whether or not the Reformation came about, the Enlightenment was coming about too. And so in terms of a, a, a more secular attack on epistemology, uh, how we know things, and, and the authority of anything, that was coming regardless. Uh, the Renaissance birthed the Enlightenment, you might say, and that was going to come about whether or not the, the Reformation did. The Reformation needed to occur, and there was a strong contention even within the Catholic Church that didn't leave the Catholic Church that would have... Uh, that, that, that were seeking to uh, invite the reformers in and actually have a reformation within the Catholic Church as opposed to what ended up happening, which was more of a revolution. Mm-hmm. Things were bad, uh, so, don't, so don't ever think that they were, that they were great. They, they, they simply weren't. It's a, it's a rewriting of history to say that they, that they were great. Um, the doctrines of men and private spirits. So in here we have sort of a, the doctrines of men kind of pointed more more. At, 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 at the, the traditions of the church that have built up over the centuries, and private spirits thinking more of the Anabaptists who were saying that they had an inner light, that they had direct revelation from God that was telling them to do this or that. Uh, and they were rewriting doctrine based on that. So here's the question. If an angel comes to you as you're hanging out uh, at your house, or maybe more historically poignant, in a cave, and says... I have a word from God. Write this down. Write these words down. Or here's these words. Uh, what do you do? Um, well, you talking about nowadays? Right, right now, if an angel visits you at your house and tells you some new doctrine, what do you do? I'd say no. Because the Bible's already been complete. You know, if the angel was telling me something that was completely coherent with doctrine, I'm not exactly sure what I'd do. I might. I might. I might chill on that for a bit, maybe sleep on it. I don't know. Uh, but if they were telling me something that wasn't coherent with doctrine, uh, wasn't coherent with coherent with the scripture, which is say, you know, what Joseph Smith yeah. claims to have had. Right. Well, I was going to say um, demons ran with it one time too. I mean, not, not to get off on a tangent, but the Bible says, you know, don't don't take from this, but don't ask it. So test know? the spirits, right? Yeah. And so, and that's, that's, that's where they're going with here. Paul in Galatians said, uh, I am astonished that you are so, this is Galatians uh, chapter 1, verse 6 and following. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we, even if Paul himself or, or his associates, Timothy, and uh, even if we preach to you, I'm sorry, even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. So, a lot of people don't realize that Muhammad uh, in Medina, I think it was in particular, when he was in Medina, ran in circles with Christians. He learned of Christianity, at least what he thought was Christianity. Actually, there's a lot, a lot of, a lot of her, uh, heretical sects of Christianity that he learned from, so he didn't really completely understand Christianity. But he, he, got that, he got some of that there. He was exposed to some scripture there. And uh, the, the harsher stuff was written later on in, in, in Mecca. But he, he was trying to convert Christians and Jews and, and then eventually pagans. And, of course, at, at some point, you know, he, says, he, he claims to have this, uh, this angel appear to him and give him this word. This new doctrine, these new ideas that, that conflict with Christianity, they conflict with Judaism. 
Joseph Smith in whatever 1830-something that he claims to have, uh, to have sort of a similar experience, right? What should they have done? If you're preaching to me a gospel different than that one, Paul told me to tell you to get a hike. And so the story is told about Martin Luther uh, that when he was translating the Bible in, in uh, I guess it was Wittenberg, um, after the Diet of Worms, he, he's, he's translating the Bible into German. And while he's doing that, Jesus appears to him. And I don't remember what Jesus is supposed to say to him. He's like, you know, you're ripping apart my church. Don't do that or whatever. And, and that supposedly Martin Luther grabbed his, uh, his, his, his ink bottle and chucked it at him. <laughs> and it went through the apparition and smashed on the wall. And you go to Wittenberg today, there is a hole or a, a, a concave portion in the wall where people have dug out the pieces of that. The irony, of course, being that, you know, Martin Luther, not an iconoclast per se, but something of an iconoclast, and uh, his little place there became a place where people would sort of get icons <laughs> from Luther's ink hitting the wall. Uh, but anyway, I say all that to say, how important is it to know the Scripture? It's very important, right? Is knowing the scriptures alone sufficient? Absolutely not. Faith is is uh, very much necessary. Um, if we're going to determine controversies, if and and how much time do I have? I have no time, basically. Ah, I'm going to skip this wonderful uh, idea that I just thought of that somebody. Yeah, I guess we could. We'll stay on this. We'll stay on this theme for a little bit longer. The, the Catholic Church has maintained that you need to have faith in uh, in the Church to teach you the right doctrine. You know it's the right doctrine because the Church teaches it, and so you don't need to put your intellect to have your faith. Henry Newman is was a uh, a Catholic theologian, and he wrote on this. But where he kind of got to an impasse was that he realized that you had to use your intellect to decide, if the, to decide for the Catholic Church. So it didn't really change the fact that you were using your intellect to decide what to believe in, so to speak. Uh, you were just pushing it one step back. And he never really gets past that. So the, the Catholic doctrine of faith is, is an implicit faith. You believe... You, they, they ask them, you know, do you believe all the teachings of the church? And you say, yes, and uh, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. And you don't necessarily understand them, and some of them you might look at and go, that's wrong. But you're going to believe it anyway because it's the church that Christ founded. That is not what the scripture calls us to do. It calls us to search the scriptures, to be knowledgeable, and have faith to, as Jesus said, to know the scriptures and uh, know the power of God. To not disbelieve the things that seem impossible. It's not irrational to say that God does impossible things by definition. Let me see here. The common accusation against uh, Reformed Christians about anybody from, I would say, 
most of most of modern Protestantism is, and, and especially us, uh, is to say that that Reformed Christians, Calvinists, and so forth, believe in the Father and the Son and the Holy Scriptures, and 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 uh, sort of skip the Spirit. Um, I won't argue, or I won't bother to bring up whatever merits that might have. You judge that for yourself. What I will say is that this idea that there is a worship of Scripture, and this can come from the charismatic wing, it can come from the emergent church wing, which is sort of the modern left slant, or the left slide that's happened, where they accuse us of having a paper pope so that Jesus, by his Spirit, is not in charge of his church, but... The scripture is, and so we're worshiping uh, a paper Jesus or following a paper pope. And then when we hang them up, we lose stuff out of them. There you go. Uh, so what I want to say there, there's, there, there's an inverted argument here. Uh, we definitely do have a high view of scripture. If you've been here for or listened to these, uh, these, these, these lessons so far, going through chapter one of the confession, we have a very, very high view of Scripture. I challenge, uh, challenge you to find another uh, doctrinal uh, affinity that has a higher view of Scripture uh, than we do. But, does that mean we're worshiping the Bible? Absolutely not. The common accusation is to say, look, the Bible itself is a collection of ancient books and uh, it's simply unfair to force this ancient collection of books to answer modern questions. It's unfair to force this and silly to force this ancient collection of books or collection of ancient books to, to teach you how to live in a modern society. Uh, to teach you the way to God who is alive and who is with us. Yet, what we are saying is that there can be no other authority within the church than the Holy Spirit. And what has the Holy Spirit done? Well, according to Peter, the Holy Spirit moved holy men uh, to write Scripture, not of their own will, but as they were moved along by the Holy Spirit. Paul in Ephesians 6, verses 16 and 17 said, In all circumstances take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. So the Word of God. Um, and lastly, let me look at and pull this open if you got it, if you got a copy. Uh, Romans chapter 15, verses uh, 4 through 6. And we will be done. Yes, Romans 15, 4 through 6. Not Romans 4, 15, which is for some reason what I was looking up. Here we go. Okay. I'm almost on the right page here. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. So, um, I'm going to read you this and you can sort of think of it as a, a benediction on you as we finish this first chapter here. Uh, continuing in, in, in verse 5 and 6. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus. Remember when we talked about why have a confession, why have creeds? 
Why say what we believe, not just say, I believe the Bible, like everybody else says they believe the Bible. But to say what we really mean when we say that we believe the Bible. Is that not what Paul is asking us to do right here? Live in such harmony with one another, in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And with that, if anybody doesn't have, if no one has any comments or questions. Definitely comments. With the Catholic Church, I mean, granted, they are really unified in a certain aspect. Like, I think Christianity is the most fragmented religion. Like, there is as far as denominations. Like, there's a lot, a lot, a lot of denominations. But, at the same time, they're unified in the wrong thing, you know. Um, I don't know why, but, I mean, I just talked to so many people. I'm always amazed how many people have some type of Christian background um, in their life. You know what I mean? Granted, God's ordained that fragmentation too, um, for whatever reason. Yeah. And so, I mean, I, I just feel like yet again, it comes back to Christ, not like, okay, the Pope said this, so mm-hmm. let's go. It's like, well, yeah, it's fragmented, but God's plan perfect. So, even that. Yeah, and we're so speaking of the difference between essential unity and geographical proximity yeah. or, or hierarchical connection. Mm-hmm. And. First off, it doesn't take long to listen to EWTN radio to realize how disunited Catholics are in doctrine. Very disunited. Uh, they are fighting all the time, um, as much as anybody else. They have the full spectrum of liberal to conservative, anything between. Um, and also, if you look at other religions altogether, Islam, not remotely monolithic. Uh, a little bit of time in the Middle East, you'll see that it's not remotely monolithic. And they have... Uh, Huge disparities in, in what they believe, too. Um, and they're killing each other over it all the time. But where we see the unity, I think, uh, and I'm really happy. I'm going to talk about this on the day that Annika is going to be uh, admitted to the table, brought into the church as a full member. Um, it's, it's, it's at the table. Uh, any Baptist, uh, you know, any Methodist or whatever that believes in Jesus can come in here and take communion because we have that essential, that real unity, the one that, the one that ultimately matters, the one that's actually in Christ. We're not just gathering disunited under the same roof. We're gathering with a degree of essential unity, of real unity. I guess we ought to quit because that clock's ticking. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for uh, bringing everybody here today and for, for providing so richly for us. We. We have the opportunity that so many other groups don't have that maybe wish to have, have a mission work or wish to have a mission work. We've got a building. Um, we're not financially stressed about this. We, we have some resources that we can work with, and I pray that we would, Lord. I pray that you would, as you did in your, uh, as you were establishing the church, fill us with your spirit that we would have boldness and that we would be uh, effectual in our witness that, that you would give us success, that you would open eyes, that you would open hearts to hear your word and draw people to you. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.